Ninepence. I'm not dead. What? Nothing. Here's your ninepence. I'm not dead. Here. He says he's not dead. Yes, he is. I'm not. He isn't? Well, he will be soon. He's very ill. I'm getting better. No, you're not. You'll be stone dead in a moment. Oh, I can't take him like that. It's against regulations. I don't want to go with the car. Oh, don't be such a baby. I can't take him. I feel fine. Well, do us a favour. I can't. Well, can you hang around a couple of minutes? He won't be long. No, I've got to go to Robinson's. They've lost nine today. Well, when's your next run? Thursday. You think I'll go for a walk? You're not fooling anyone, you know. Look, isn't there something you can do? I feel happy. I feel happy. Ah, oh, thanks very much. Touch off. Hello Welcome back to Vox Popcast. I am Christopher Maverick. You can call me Mav. God willing, everything's working this week. We had a whole bunch of problems last week. I am here with all of the regular co-hosts of the show. So, hi, Wayne. Hi, Katya. Hi, Hannah. Hey. <laughs> hey. Uh, so this was awful. <laughs> so last week we had my computer blow up in the middle of recording, which actually happened the first time two weeks ago, but we dealt with it. And Hannah's computer died and Hannah's internet has always been awful and everything was horrible last week. So there was no the, show. The, the sheer awesomeness of this panel overwhelmed the internet. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Let's go with that. I like that. <laughs> yeah, that works. Um, so I had to send my computer away for a week and it appears to be nice and stable now. Turns out that the RAM had burned out in my computer mm. or most of it. Um, that was because the, they were like, oh, well, you're probably doing something wrong. It's like run a diagnostic. And they're like, oh, oh, no, this is bad. <laughs> and I was like, oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, and I was like, well, it's like, they're like, oh, you're, you're right. It is broken. Not what you want to hear. The good news is that you're right. And I'm like, okay, what's the bad news? Like, oh, we're just, we're going to have to mail this away. <laughs> we can't even fix this here. They replaced the RAM. They replaced the motherboard as well. And they gave me a new battery. And like, I mean, it's essentially a new computer. They basically rebuilt it because they're like, well, since we've got it here. And so well, I'm better now. Yay. Hannah, what did you do? Uh, I literally bought a new computer. Uh, <laughs> And got new internet. So mm -hmm. you never know what like it's like to try and write your dissertation without feeling like your computer's melting above you mm -hmm. until you do. <laughs> and suddenly so it's a lot easier to do things. So you're no longer on a 2400 baud modem that you were <laughs> with your internet before. <laughs> I gave in to the spectrum monster, <laughs> which I guess is the lesser of the two evils here. Mm-hmm. And Katia, you're just busy. Your your technology all works. You're just as far as I know. Busy all the time. Uh, my computer freakout was over the summer, so uh, hopefully that doesn't persist because I have all the deadlines coming up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, it's a bad time. It's a bad time. <laughs> yeah. And and Wayne, you're. You're just, well, you know, you're back in the world of teaching and working yeah, another yeah. job. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So also been busy uh, and, you know, friend in from out of town this week. So that, that compromised some of my evenings, not compromise. It was a good thing, but compromise. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, Damn her. <laughs> compromised our ability to record. Uh, so, and as I, I said before we started recording, this is a midterm weekend. So I have 34 midterm papers to grade. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I graded midterms this week, uh, midterm papers, because I'm a horrible person who gives them a test and has a paper. Papers are due oh. next week. So, yeah. 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 So, class on funny books. Come on. Yeah. I mean, and it's fine. I'm sure the papers are all four, five, six pages. You know, it's like three questions out of the nine I gave them and short essays. And I've, I've done three, and, and so far those three have been really very good. So, okay. Ace for everybody. Yeah, I, I, I'm kind of waiting for that one. Makes me go, ooh. <laughs> well, you know, and it's funny. first first time I taught is a chat. My first time getting ooh the, in a good the, way or an ooh and like, ugh. No, no, I, I'm I'm waiting for the. Ugh. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, no, for, yeah, if, you know, first time I taught at Chatham, I did. I had that experience of I got those first you know, three or four papers in for the the midterm, and I read through them and, and went, "Hey, these, these are pretty good. This is you know, better than I expected." You know, not knowing what to expect that first semester teaching, and but these are all pretty well written. And then I got that one that was exceptional. Mm. It's like, oh, maybe those others weren't as good as I thought. <laughs> yeah, there's always there's always that one student that like that just makes everybody else look bad, and that everyone's low key is sort of like judgment. Why? <laughs> I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that that, that first one was Abby, who's been on the show. She, she, was, she was one of them. Absolutely. Yes. yes. <laughs> there, there were three or four people in that class, Abby among them, who just rose above everybody else. And not that anybody was horrible. None of them were as bad as I expected. I don't even know what I expected. That, that is high that, praise. That, I know. That's horrible, isn't it? That's a horrible thing to say. I feel like I, just, I should maybe not put that in the show. Yeah, <laughs> I just no, no. Let, let me let me clarify that. I my first semester teaching, I didn't know what to expect in terms of writing level, research oh, level, yeah. that sort of thing. Uh, so when I got papers in, it was just it was much higher than my expectations, mainly because I didn't know what to expect. Right. Mm-hmm. And not be, not because I thought they were all a bunch of illiterate, illiterate idiots, you know, <laughs> that, that's not what it was. So, so you've spent 20 years, you know, arguing about who can beat Batman or, or, yeah, or Superman. That's part of it. Yes. Yes. I, <laughs> <laughs> that is the, that's my, the level my, of, I mean, yeah. I love comic book stores, but the level of discourse that happens in them typically. <laughs> And I, I will Not say, necessarily. I will I say, you know, my my store rises above the typical level because we're right in between Carnegie Mellon and University right. of Pitt. So I think our discourse is at a higher level than most stores, simply because of mm-hmm. that, and because I'm the person well, they're talking about it as well. <laughs> we've talked about this before, but you guys get the occasional you know call from Diamond saying, "Did you really mean to order fifty copies of Mage and Hellboy?" Right. What, yes. What? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> No one in the country orders 50 copies. Of yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We, we're that store. <laughs> we're those people. <laughs> no, no, hey, here, no, my store without giving specific numbers, Matt Wagner's mage outsells Deadpool in my store. Wow. Yeah. So there, yeah, it, take, take that. It is take that Deadpool. And, and again, that is the, like, I imagine if it happens anywhere else, it's Matt Wagner's hometown. Like, yeah, like yeah, there's that that doesn't happen anywhere exactly. in the world. Yep. And I take responsibility for part of that because it's a book that I hype up. We yeah. also have a lot of long. We have a lot of our store has been around forever. We have a lot of long term customers. I had a handful of old mage fans come out of the woodwork who haven't read comics in years like he's doing it. Oh, OK, sign me up. So but, but 
No. Well, you know, it's, I mean, it's this, I have to know how it ends. I mm-hmm. mean, it's a, it's, it's, it's essentially one long story that he's been working on for 40 right. years. So, you know, <laughs> so it'd be nice to know how it's going to turn out. So, so like Game of Thrones. Yeah. Yeah. People have just been waiting for this. So. Oh God. I, 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 when, I, when, I, when did the I, first Game of Thrones I start? Friends on. I want, I mean, or the first fight, Song of Fire and Ice, because I'm wondering who's been, who is slower between Martin oh. and, and Wagner? Well, the, the, the first Fire and Ice came out in like late 90s, I think. The, 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 oh, the then Wagner. So, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah, it came out in, uh, what? Like 97, uh, 98? He, he began the first volume of the series in 1991, okay. and it was published in 1996. Okay. So, yeah. And the hero discovered came out in... 84. 84. Yep. So... So yeah, Wagner has been taking more time at this than George R. R. Martin. So, <laughs> though he might finish first because yeah. it's looking—I mean, it's looking yeah, like this he, is going to conclude. Like so. Four issues yes. left. So, so anyway, mm-hmm. what's today's topic? Oh, well, we're almost starting. Today's topic is. And this is weird because we were, we were joking before the show. You know, we got to record or we tried to record last week and we didn't get very yeah, far. Like 20 minutes before we talk on and off yeah. for like 15 minutes, 15, 20 minutes. So we're going to say everything we just said last time, except that none of us actually remember because, you know, as we've just talked about, we're all overworked. Um, but today's topic is loosely La Morte de la Tour, The Death of the Author, an article by Roland Barthes, who is a liter- one of my favorite literary critics. He's a philosopher, semiotician, all-around smart guy, and dead. That's what I should say he was. One of so we can interpret things. him however we, but, we can um, interpret him however we like. Yeah, we can interpret him however we want. <laughs> <laughs> this started from last week's show, or I guess two weeks ago, since we since we took the week off. Wayne made the comment that if you know either of us and you happen to get into a conversation with us on Facebook, just be prepared to understand that we're just going to use that as the show the next week. That's, that's how we do it. It's like, oh, yeah, this is a good topic. And yeah. I even say it a lot. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. clearly this is a show thing. So I, I, I will note it in, in people in Facebook comments a lot or blog comments or stuff that people say at the store um, if we're if we happen to be hanging out there. So. We were arguing with this guy. I don't even remember what his what the initial thing he was talking about was. It didn't it doesn't matter. But he made an offhanded comment to the effect of, well, you know, the author is dead. And my my first thought was, how do you even know that phrase? It's not something I hear said outside of academic circles. And And then also he was using it to mean sort of the opposite of what it actually means. So we were like, well. That should, yeah. We should do a show where and, we just and, talk and about that fair, concept yeah, and like fair, why he's, he's a CMU graduate, more yeah. on the, the like technical side of things. But he did go to CMU, so the, his chances of encountering that as a theory is probably pretty high. Um, so, so right. there is that. But well, well, you know, actually, after you said this before, I asked people <laughs> who are not academics in my life, like, do you know what death of the author is? And I actually got pretty close definitions to what. Bart says in his essay. Okay, so mm. it's, it's apparently a thing. Who knew? Yeah. I, I, I don't remember ever hearing it before I was in school, but yeah, and, 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 and I, yeah. I was drunk a lot. And I think it's <laughs> the last time. I, you know, I don't. I certainly don't recall that from any of my my college experience. But that goes back a long time because I'm old. Uh, but I, I don't. I can't recall exactly when I first encountered the idea. But it seems like it's been floating around in my world for a long time, just because I read so much and, and do this sort of thing. 
So, mm-hmm. so what's it mean? Well, the origins first are, you know, it, the article is called La Morte de la Tour, which is a joke based on La Morte de Arthur, <laughs> which is Thomas Mallory's version of the King mm-hmm. Arthur Knights of the Round Table right. stories. The death, the death of Arthur. And yeah. And that has nothing to do with the actual article itself at all, other than the fact that I guess Bart just <laughs> thought it was funny, <laughs> which it kind of is. You know, there's yeah, it's, it's right, nerd right. humor, you know, or what passed for nerd humor in his day. <laughs> um, but the idea behind it is, and, and it's an interesting theory. Usually, <laughs> in fact, this was true when I, when I first went to college the first time. I remember getting into conversations about, well, what do we think the author meant here? What do we think he meant here? And you, an old way of doing criticism is you look at what the author wrote and then you go through and you look at everything he or she wrote in their personal lives. You do historical context. Um, uh, Hannah, you work with um, Jane Austen a lot. And I know one big thing with 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 Austen scholars is she only wrote what you write four novels. No, she, five? she wrote six Six. Okay. And then people go and read, you know, here is a, here, here is a letter that she wrote to her mom. Here is her shopping list that she went to the grocery store here. Like, like people collect everything that she's ever, you know, scribbled down on paper to try and get into her mind. Correct. Yes. <laughs> and that's, that's like, a, that's one way of doing scholarship. Another way of doing scholarship is to go, okay, she wrote these books, how long, 200 years ago? She, she started writing at the end of the 18th century and her first stuff was like, like her major novels were published at the beginning of the 19th. Okay. So yeah. So 200 years ago and she, you know, obviously she lives in a different world than we live in now. So is the, is the way to read Pride and Prejudice to, to read it and sort of think about what she might've meant at that point or is the way to read pride and prejudice to read it and think about what it means to us today in our moment in 2018 and bart would argue that both work that either is fine because he makes a comment that the story the narrative is a contract between the writer and the reader and the writer finishes the work, sends it out into the world. And then it's the reader's idea to bring these characters to life in their head, to bring whatever you bring to the table, to the story. And therefore everyone will have a different interpretation to any given piece of art, any piece, any given piece of media. And they're all, he wouldn't say they're all correct, but he'd say they're all valid, which is sort of a weird distinction. <laughs> but, but, you know, you can't just you can't just say, you know, Tarzan's about aliens because it's not, you know, it just isn't. But um, but you can, you, you know, I, I often teach Tarzan in my intro to lit class. And one thing that my students will say is it, it, it really seems kind of racist in lots of places. And I say it is very racist. It doesn't just seem racist. It is extremely racist. and. I read it as sort of a commentary on race and sort of problems of um, black people and white people were viewed at the beginning of the 20th century. That's probably not how Burroughs meant it. Burroughs almost certainly meant it as a no, no, no. White people are vastly superior because Mm -hmm. of what I know about Burroughs and his personal life and the world around him. But I tend to read it with the opposite take of what can I take from this? And Bart would say, this is why you can do that. When it just, I, I guess you know, I was talking about this in class uh, since the last time we, we 
you know, tried to record this. So I, I don't, I only had one student who, at least one student who spoke up and admitted to having heard of this before in another class. And she's someone who <laughs> essentially is doing literary criticism in other classes is what she wants to do. Um, but it led to a, a much better discussion than I expected here. Once again, I guess I'm underestimating my students. I need to get over that. Um, <laughs> Uh, but it led to a really good discussion just about the idea of, of interpretation and what it means. And and this young woman, she was very much on the side of you know, she she liked the the broader context, bringing in the historical elements, you know, the what did, you know, what did the author mean by this? Yeah. Um, she appreciates what bards mean. And, and, you know, death of the author doesn't mean you can't do that, just that you, you don't have to. Um, right. I had another student who. He very much just, you know, he, he, and he said kind of overtly, he likes to read just something for what it is, what's on the page in front of him. He doesn't like bringing in that other stuff. And he made what I thought was an interesting point, and he's not wrong, is there are people who just stick any old interpretation they want on something just to back up what they believe. Right. And that's certainly that's certainly true. And he, he's not wrong in that. Yeah, I guess you know, my counter argument to him is you, know, you can do that as long as it's supported by the text or what you're reading, you have to find evidence for that. Uh, Tarzan's about yeah, aliens. I, well, prove that to me. <laughs> I always tell my students that like, there aren't necessarily right or wrong readings. There are better and worse readings because it like, based on how much evidence you can actually bring from yeah. the text. Yeah. You have to find evidence for that. Like, if you can right. if you went out aliens and Tarzan, I'll buy that. But you know, uh, and, and until you can show me some textual evidence for these things, then then we there's a problem, um, but that you know that that whole I know myself I I like bringing in I think I mentioned this in the blog post our, our call for comments, um, although that's been two or three weeks ago so I have no idea what I wrote, but I just you know what <laughs> you know, I you know, like <laughs> to to use comics as as the reference you know in reading Watchmen I like knowing that those characters are all based on the old Charlton superheroes. And what that means, yeah, you know, I, you know, to me, it adds a different layer of meaning when, when you talk about Rorschach and you, you, him being based on the question, who was created by Steve Ditko, who hadn't allowed his picture to be taken in fifty years, who is a crazy Anne Rand supporter, that gives all kinds of layers to the interpretation of the character of Rorschach that you don't necessarily get just from the text itself. Uh, but you don't have to know any of that to be able to read Watchmen. And do an interpretation of Rorschach, but you know, for myself, I, I like having that sort of thing. And I mean, Bart would point out that you know those things, so right. you're bringing a different context to. I mean, and, and yeah, I, mean, I first right. read Watchmen in 1985, and I don't know that I knew anything about Ditko at that point. I knew he was the. I knew he was a name that used to draw Spider-Man. And that's the yeah, same here. Inclusiveness of him. I didn't know any of that the, at the time. Right. Like I didn't, yeah, I didn't know those things. And I still knew in 1985, 1986 that, oh my God, this is the, this is, probably the most important comic book I've ever read. I, that, I, I had that feeling yeah. back then. So, well, and, and that's I, so anytime that, I talk about Watchmen with, with students or, or anybody who didn't read it back then, there is, there is a cultural context to reading it then. I, I was in grad school when that came out and I'd read comics my entire life. And there was myself and some other friends who were reading with that, with Dark Knight, those two books in particular. When you were reading, I remember us having conversations of, oh my God, this changes everything in comics. Mm-hmm. And, like the, the, and there was an awareness that it was doing that. And if you read it now, you can be told that this changed everything, but you don't have the same visceral reaction to it. Right. But 
But that doesn't mean that the reaction that you have now is any different. Right. Uh, uh, more uh, an interesting way of looking at it for, for me. I just saw last night. I saw the most recent remake of A Star Is Born, mm-hmm. Bradley Cooper's m- m- movie that. <laughs> We'll probably end up doing an Oscar he, show at some point on this show. He's not a raccoon in this one, is he? No, though it is. It is. Well, he but is, that's interesting. He is so versatile. Every once in a while, every once in a while, as I watch a, as I watch any Bradley Cooper movie, I am very aware that that guy is also a raccoon. <laughs> <laughs> he is. He, he and, is so. And, he is so versatile. I just. Yeah, and he and he does. He's a method he actor. He does I, caught him, voice. I caught him digging through my trash one night a couple years ago. He's a method. <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, when he puts he puts he puts on a voice in this film, which is actually, I mean, to his credit, because it does help you get lost from it. Because Rocket Raccoon talks like Bradley yeah. Cooper, he, yeah. you know, like Rocket Raccoon sounds just like the guy from Silver Lane's playbook. Jackson Maine, this the protagonist or one of the two protagonists of of um, A Star is Born does not sound like Bradley Cooper. And that helps. I mean, he talks like he mumbles a lot. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, 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 he has a different voice like that. He mumbles a lot. And he has an affect that lets you get lost in the character, which is useful because otherwise I might have been distracted by it. But the point I was going to make is there's a there's a side character. If you haven't seen the movie, go see it. This is going to be in the Oscar conversation. It was it was very good. And people people were asking me. Uh, I got a comment on Facebook when I just I just checked into the movie theater. It's like oh, I'm at the movie theater to see Stars Born. And somebody's like, that doesn't seem like your kind of movie. Trust me, all <laughs> movies are my kind of movie. If you know me. The, the fact that I, I am I am fascinated by the idea of pictures moving in front of me. If you make a movie about it, I will go see it, um, particularly now that I have I have AMC's um, VIP pass. So I, I literally can just go. I pay a monthly fee. I can go to the movies three times a week. So so I try to <laughs> like um, anyway, this is an amazing movie. It is extremely well done. The um, supporting cast is it stars Cooper, who directs it and Lady Gaga. But the supporting cast is amazing. Someone at some point taught Andrew Dice Clay to act (laughs) and he plays Lady Gaga's father. And I'm telling you this because while watching it last night, I at some point just leaned over to my wife and said, wow, who taught him how to act? And stuff's like who? And I was like, do you not know who that is playing Gaga's father? And she's like, no. I'm like, that's Andrew Dice Clay. <laughs> like, what? Like, you, you you might not even recognize him. It, it, he's very good in it. Sam Elliott, who realizes he's very old now, and damn it, I'm going to try to get, get an Oscar mm-hmm. here. <laughs> he's amazing in it. But what really, really st- sort of stands out in this film is Dave Chappelle's in it. Um, not a lot. He's a relatively minor character in it, and he plays a character. He he plays a friend of of um, Bradley Cooper's character, and he has they, they have a conversation. He you know, he in in some respect he's sort of a, a magical Negro character, which is another literary term that we that we don't need to deconstruct right now. But he is a wise friend of Cooper's character, and Cooper's character goes to him to talk, and Chappelle sits him down and monologues with him basically deconstructing the idea of fame and the trappings of fame and the movie is very much about how difficult it is to be famous and 
you know, and Chappelle's character breaks down, here's some of the problems that happen for famous people and why it's not all cracked up with it's not all it's cracked up to be. And here's some of the moral dilemmas and here's some of the ethical dilemmas that go on and blah, 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 blah. It's like five, 10 minutes long and it's not acting. If you watch this movie, you know, the original stars born is from like 1937. So it's been 80 years, 81 years. And I'm, I'm curious what will happen in 2098 when people watch this version of the, uh, of the movie. Are they going to are they going to know enough about who Dave Chappelle is to understand that this isn't just a character mm-hmm. talking about the trappings of fame? Bradley Cooper knows who Dave Chappelle is. Dave Chappelle is ranting about the problems that he had in his life very very authentically and there's and if you know anything about him it's impossible to separate that moment from the character it just becomes a Chappelle giving a chance to in a very large form pour his heart out about what went down with Comedy Central so much like with Ditko I don't know how much of this you need to know versus how much of it improves it and maybe the purpose of literature and I'm using that term broadly to mean, text. you know, all media is to be interpretive. Yeah. Text, uh, text, movies, you know, whatever you interpret it based on what you do know. And there are several levels of meaning. There is the level of meaning of just the literal what the character is saying. And there's the level of it's not just a character. This is Dave Chappelle talking to me. But it's, is it Dave Chappelle talking to me or is it a writer and a director telling Dave Chappelle what to do to create a character? And there's so many levels mm-hmm. there and they're sort of all important. And there's or at least that's there's another level that uh, we haven't really talked about that isn't always there. But a lot of times whenever something is serialized, whether it's in the Victorian period and novels like Charles Dickens were published in like little chunks yes. uh, mm-hmm. or, you know, comic books or television shows like Lost, um, there is actually an interaction between the reader, our viewer and the writer. Uh, so like, for instance, Charles Dickens, when he published things like Dombey and Son or Our Mutual Friend, he had original plans for what he would do, some of which would be like uh, killing off like a male romantic lead. And people didn't like that. <laughs> so he he changed it based on what the audience would like. Uh, lost, uh, you know, they had some very unpopular characters, Nikki and Paolo. And the audience complained and admittedly like the writer's room claims that they already realized it wasn't working, but they were killed off in like the most <laughs> yeah. Yeah. hilarious death possible. Um, so, you know, there, there is like, not just like this, the you know writer puts this thing out into the world and we interpret it, but actually like the writing of whatever the thing is, is shaped by reader or viewer response. I mean, Star Wars just shut down like their standalone movies for the moment because oh, of Han Solo. Apparently. And, and, yeah. And, and that certainly yeah. applies to the way comics have traditionally been done in the past. You know, Watchmen is thought of as a graphic novel, but you know, it was serialized as 12 issues over the course of a year and a half or however long it took to, to come out. Mm-hmm. And, and yes, you know, just when you were reading it serialized like that, your interaction with the text is different than sitting down over a weekend and reading the entire thing. You know, I had months to think about these ideas and topics and, and dig through panel by panel to look for those little details and what does this mean? And, and that, that changes your interaction with the text. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, and that's one I think certainly Alan Moore had that script out there. He did what he did. I don't think he paid a whole lot of attention to feedback from the audience, but certainly in comics, you know, letters, 
Well, but also right, you yes, know that because yes, you, yeah. we know Alan Moore. We know the kind of person he is. And we, it's, I mean, even now teaching it, I mean, the experience that my students have I'm teaching I'm, I'm Watchmen this week, the, <laughs> we read first half. Yeah. We read the first half for, for Thursday. They're reading the second half for Tuesday, but they're yeah. not having that experience that we had that first time. They're reading what took me a year. Right. They're reading in seven days, but also I told mm-hmm. them who Alan Moore was first because it's, it's really, if you know anything about Alan Moore, it's really hard to separate the man that is Alan Moore mm-hmm. from his work now but I don't, yeah, I, I, I knew a little about, about, I read, about him then. He wasn't as yeah, weird right, and quirky right. in 85 as he is now. Um, so, but yeah, it's, yeah, but there are, there's certainly, you know, in comics, the serialized stuff, you know, there's letters pages, there's feedback people write in and it does have an impact on the way the, the creators of any of these series do stuff. They, they follow things, you know, Jason Todd, the, the second Robin was killed by a vote. <laughs> yeah, I mean, D- D- DC Sorry, reached out and said, hey, do you want us to kill Jason Todd? Call one of these two numbers. Oh, and, my goodness. And, 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 and so like thousands of people <laughs> called in and I forget the numbers, but Jason Todd was killed off by a vote of like 67 people. So, so, so they, so they yeah. allowed the Joker. It was really close. Yeah, it was, it was really close. Yeah, I remember when it happened. And because, yeah, it, it was, I don't know if it was an 800 number or a 900 number, but I remember when it happened. And Jason Todd, honestly, you know, as at least in 1990 or whatever this is, 89, Jason Todd was a really shitty character. He, he wasn't being written well. And also he's mm. not the Robin people wanted at the time. You know, people wanted Dick Grayson and they'd grown up with Dick, Dick Grayson. And Jason was written, he was written specifically as the anti Dick Grayson. Dick Grayson had always been, you know, the, he was there to like sort of brighten up Batman and Batman was all dark and serious and Robin's goofy. Yeah. Dick Grayson is the well-adjusted member of the Bat family. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He's, and and he's, and he's all fine and, and, and great. And then they get rid of Dick and they bring in Jason and Jason is a Robin who kills people. And Jason is a Robin who, um, uh, who, who just was not fun for 1988 or whatever it was when, when they were, when, when they first brought him in or when they second brought him in, there's (laughs) crisis. Don't worry about it. Um, and people were not enjoying the storyline of Jason Todd. And I like, I didn't know anybody who liked him at the time. So I assumed it was good. So they, they do a story where, uh, Joker catches Robin and bludgeons him with a crowbar for three straight straight pages Mm -hmm. with little tiny panels. So it's not like, it's not even just like nine, nine hits over three pages. There's like 15 panels on each page of just the Joker getting a really good rhythm going and just got thunk 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 and hitting robin over the head with a with a crowbar till he's a bloody mess and then yeah and then he goes well not good enough so i'm just gonna blow up the building that you're in and he blows up the building just as batman's coming to the building and that's the end of the comic book hey kids you want him to die call one nine hundred it's like clearly they're gonna kill him off but but apparently it was like a it was like a 51 percent 49 percent thing like there was yeah. it was real close it's, it's, from what the point i understand is it's, it's a case of you know the the creators responding to the fan what the fans wanted so you know that's <laughs> while we're talking about author's intent because that's not necessarily the author's intent that's the audience intent yeah. <laughs> and, and when you get into yeah. 
Well, Hannah mentioned Dickens and Great Expectations mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. is famously changed. He, you know, he, he it's original it, in its original serialization. People just hated the ending. It's like, no, <laughs> what, what do you mean they don't get to get? No, this is awful. And Dickens is like, but it's poignant. It's great. And he's like, no, we don't like this. Yeah. So he just wrote yeah. the final chapter again. <laughs> and like, All right, I'll, I'll write a happy ending. Like, oh, well, you guys go pay me, sure. <laughs> that, that's my understanding of what he did. Right, and especially with um, periodicals, I think is really interesting because I think, Hannah, you mentioned this. It's not just like reader reception, but it's also like the editors deciding what they want to publish. Um like a lot of what we're talking about also happens with sort of the formation of science fiction in the twenties in the United States, where like a lot of the form of early science fiction is attributed to an editor of amazing stories, Hugo Gernsback, um, both for people who like particularly like his predilections and people who really don't. Um, but that, I mean, I think it's interesting because it's, uh, an editor became like the touchstone for what the genre is rather than an author or a set of authors or like text. It was literally sort of like what he was willing to publish and what he was interested in publishing. So it was Wells, it was Asimov, you know, it was H.P. Lovecraft. The Victorian period actually does get this reputation for being like prudish and boring, which if you've ever read a Victorian novel, you know that it's definitely not and it's weird and really messed up. Victorians um, are freaky people. In so many ways. Also (laughs) apparently mainly drunk. I just learned Victorian punch recipes are mainly booze. Anyway. Yeah, well, if you, you know, like. So I'm a Victorian is what you're saying. Yeah. I was like, this has given me like learning, learning early, early Victorian, like drink recipes has given me a whole new perspective on this period. (laughs) Which is why context and knowing the context of the author is helpful. (laughs) I could assess maybe how drunk either they or their readers may have been. I could speculate. Sorry. Maybe that, maybe, no, that maybe that's why people thought, you know what sounds romantic? Marrying a guy who's 20 years older than you, who has locked his first wife on the third floor. I mean, when hasn't that happened Swoon. to all of us? <laughs> <laughs> You can pull out your sexy semi-attention outfit, Wayne. Just the last couple the of, of posts we've been talking about uh, sexy Disney princesses and, and sexy Muppets. So we, Mav and I have been wearing our, our sexy Halloween costumes for the last several episodes. And so so tonight I'm dressed in my sexy semi-attention outfit. Which I've decided is a black turtleneck beret and hot pants. So it's like it's like I have my cam on. <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> right but to to my yeah, original you're well, you're to the original right. point oh yes, yes. Point. oh yes, yes oh yeah there, there was an actual Victorian. academic point here please continue yes okay so like you know there's this reputation of prudishness but actually like there was a lot of dirty stuff published in the period mm-hmm. including porn which no one talks about it's actually very boring to bother <laughs> reading it anyway uh but <laughs> You know, like there were these circulating. But if you find some, send some to Hannah. Hey, I are, I love her research. I probably already read it. Let's just get that out there. I. It was for research, obviously. Yes, um, obviously, yeah. Everything I do, research. It's it, it is it is the best. No, it's you know, the best. It's the best it's scam is academia, where you're like, oh, this is research. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Uh, I guess I can now claim board games as my research because I'm delivering papers on them. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. There you go. Great. Great. Uh, So anyway, uh, like 
in like 18, like the 1840s up to like the end of the period, uh, Charles Edward Muddy, like he, I think that's how you pronounce his name. He had like this big Lindy library and he kind of had prudish tastes. So therefore people wrote to be included in like the lending library, because that's how you made, you know, a lot of your money and gained readership because people would buy a subscription to the library. So like there's mm-hmm. all these other texts that were published and like were written and we don't really talk about them because they're not like the big popular things. So anyway, that was my original point before we went down the rabbit hole of your <laughs> <laughs> Victorian stuff. <laughs> So one thing that's that's interesting to me when when you read Victorian stuff or anything really, but we talk about what the reader brings to something. We make assumptions about a time period just based on a little more than the stereotypes of what exists in our head mm-hmm. already. Uh, obviously, no, the Victorians weren't all prudes, well, I, much like not everybody is today. There, yeah. You know, there's a variety of literature, some of which existed and became famous and therefore becomes the the thing that everybody talks about, but there's always going to be a variety of stuff. And when we're reading, when we're reading a Victorian novel in 2018, it is impossible for anybody, whether you're just a a random fan or Mm -hmm. a hardcore academic, you're always going to bring some of your expectations of that time period, correct or not to a reading of that time period. As, as an aside, I like the fact that Tana used the phrase down the rabbit hole to talk about Victorian porn. I mean, uh, <laughs> I, given, the, given, given the origins of that phrase, I am stuck in my period. What can I say? Or not? <laughs> Definitely not. Hey. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> so, but yeah, I mean, we, we certainly do. And, and you know, talking about that context with you, when you're teaching it or whatever, you know, having that context there. Yeah. You know, is, is it possible to talk about any of this stuff without knowing some of that context, you know, which yes. Yeah. I, I guess going back to the point of, of Bart's essay is yes, you can absolutely read this stuff, not knowing any context whatsoever and do an interpretation of it. That is, is valid. But when you know the context to me, there's just, there's such a, a broader sense of, of what you can bring to that yeah. interpretation. Well, and I think both things happen. Yeah. The new criticism is, Largely, there's a for people who don't know new criticism. I don't mean things that just happen. When, when were the new critics uh, around? Do you guys remember? I mean, it's literally that school is from yeah. the fifties, sixties. <laughs> new criticism <laughs> is a is a school of thought in 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 literary studies, which is a which refers to a very specific type of textual interpretation, which largely says that the the proper analysis mm-hmm. of a work is what is on the page that you're not supposed to bring in outside interpretation of anything. It's just, what does this poem say? Literally, what does it say? I don't need to know whether the author is male or female or black or white or Hispanic or, or gay or straight. Like what is the poem saying is what the new critics would say. And that is one way of doing it. It's not what I like to do. I like to think about all kinds of things. I'm going to say the problem with referring to any movement as new or modern is eventually when it's in the past, those things don't make sense anymore. So (laughs) yeah, we are currently modernism to a literary studies person. Ended in 1940 ish. And that's being, that's being late in 1940 at the latest, you know, or sometime during the second world war is technically postmodern, except the stuff that doesn't, isn't really postmodernism. So yeah, yeah. There's postmodern and then, (laughs) and then 
we're post postmodern <laughs> right now, and it, like it, like it's it's really hard to it's really hard to name the um, literary periods mm-hmm. that you're in right now. So, uh, for instance, in, in comics, it's yeah. the exact opposite. In comics, we have a golden age, a silver age, a bronze age, and a modern age. And the modern age started in 1985 ish, and I'm pretty sure it's over <laughs> now. <laughs> but it's, but we don't but we don't have a good you know, we don't have a good thing to call the you know the contemporary period yeah. that we're in right now right the present because the word postmodern has has taken on implications right. that don't mm-hmm. necessarily apply to what we're talking mm-hmm. about right. in and Mar- and marvel comics they decided to okay. trademark their own heroic yeah. age so that's what they started referring to it as it's like no we're we're no longer in the modern age we're in the heroic age now and it's like no but that's a that's a branding <laughs> and it was Matt stupid <laughs> but but like, but it's and, hard, and, 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 and doesn't refer no, to no, any no. comics other than the superhero comics that Marvel does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not a useful, like, critical lens. Yeah, I actually liked a lot of the comics in the Heroic Age. To be fair, but it becomes a problem when you're essentially trying to monetize a conversation, mm-hmm. and yeah. like, how do you like you can no longer have that conversation without. Um, but it's but it's but it's hard because I, I don't know. So in comics, I don't know mm-hmm. what age we're in, but I know that what we're doing old right age. now we're in comics is not what we were doing <laughs> in nineteen. Yeah, we're in our old age. <laughs> well, yeah, but but we're not we're not doing even no. in superhero comics, but in the industry as yeah. a whole, we're not doing in two thousand eighteen what we were doing no, in nineteen eighty six. It is it is a it is a very different world, a very different kind of storytelling. The deconstructionist comics that happened in 2018, um, I'm trying to think what's the most recent thing that I could, that I think, uh, well, even right now, we are currently in the middle of writing a newer version of, um, uh, a, 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 there's a book called Doomsday mm-hmm. Clock, which is coming out, which is revisiting the Watchmen world. And it is doing very different work than what Watchmen did in 1985. It's dealing with a different cultural moment. It is dealing with it in a different way. And it is it, it is very much mm-hmm. a different kind while, of story. While, while, while trying to build on the tropes of Watchmen, like very specifically building on the tropes of Watchmen. Right. Right. And I and I think and I and I, and I think another you know one that I liked. Uh, I don't know if you ever read yeah. Invincible, Wayne. I, I, I never finished okay. it. I read Invincible. a lot of it, but I, I never I didn't finish it. I read yeah. the entire thing and I, I actually, I didn't like it at the beginning until I realized that, and I'm not sure if he knew he was doing a thing <laughs> when he started, <laughs> but like, like, but it's a hundred and like yeah. it's 144 mm-hmm. issues or something like that. It's, it's like, it's like 12 years of 12 books. Um, and like, I think he sort of about 15, 20 issues in, he's like, Oh, I see where I'm going. And he starts like very much building yeah. towards that world. He publishes it over, you know, over like 12 years. It, the comics industry changes around him yeah. and he has to adjust course and you can sort of see it in the book, but the, the world that he's responding to, it just ended. So the world that he was, he's responding to, um, in like March or, or April when it ended of 2018 is a different comics world than he started mm-hmm. responding to in 2006, which was very much the end of that modern age push. The modern age, turn towards things like image comics happening and the creator's market. And those things are all just sort of, they're just sort of part mm-hmm. of the industry now and we're moving in a different but, direction. And I think that happens with all, yeah. all media. Like, like we always, we refer to, we refer to the, uh, to internet television shows, to podcasting as new media. 
I was I was on a podcast for the first time in like 2007 mm-hmm. or five or something like that. It's been it's not new anymore. It's been 15 yeah. years when I, I think and maybe this is a future show. I don't want to get into this too much now, but I, talking about these changes in the comics industry, just as a, a participant in all of this, you know, as a creator, as someone who, who reads the stuff and, and very specifically as someone who's involved in the retail end of it, I really think the industry is going through a change right now, the likes of which we haven't seen since the introduction of the direct market in the late seventies. And that that's a, just a change in the way books were distributed that led to massive changes in the industry. And I think we're going through something similar. It's just, it's harder to pinpoint what it is at that time. It was the direct market caused this. Now it's a bit more diverse than that, a, a bit more. Yeah. I, yeah, I just, it's, I've had this conversation with different people and I think maybe this is a show we should talk about. I can't pinpoint what it is exactly other than this overall feeling that this is the most major change we've had in the industry in 35 years, 40 years. But anyway, mm-hmm. side note for a future show. <laughs> well, well, it's a yeah. side note, but, but, but what you're trying to do, and this is, and this is sort of, you know, it's a, and like, we're not just talking about the death of the author. We're talking about yeah. how criticism works. And one, one thing that I think people, People mistake the word criticism when we when we use criticism in a popular context, often we mean something negative. Oh, you're criticizing it. It's bad. If you're a film critic, it's still criticism if you say it's good. But they're, but you're looking for, you know, when I write my movie reviews, people are looking for me to say, is this a good movie or a bad movie? Someone, you know, I made that I, I pointed out that somebody asked why I was seeing a Star is Born. It doesn't seem like a movie that see someone else asked well, should I go see that or Venom? And the answer is Star's Born. I mean, honestly, for a lot of people who read what I write online, you'd probably rather see Venom, but I'm telling you right off the back, A Star is Born yeah. is, a, is a better movie. When you get academic with it, criticism isn't necessarily about what is good or bad. What we're talking about is what can we say about this thing? And there's an argument that it is impossible. And I don't believe this, but and you know, I can't believe it because my my period is 20th and 21st century. Um, so I, 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 I'm a contemporary critic, but there's an argument that a lot of a lot of people have that you cannot accurately analyze and criticize something from inside of it. That, you know, that Hannah working with the with Victorian works better because she has the benefit of hindsight in a way that I very much don't when I'm trying to when I'm trying to analyze a star is born, which came out Friday, you know, like, like that, that is, that is harder for me in a way because it is literally happening right now. Right. But criticism, I mean, criticism is like, a, yeah. the, I mean, the way I always think about it and the way I was taught to think about it is you're, you're constructing what a text means. So, and I mean, I, I like, right. yeah, the claim that, that contemporary criticism like doesn't make sense or it's not useful or blah, 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 blah. Like I'm, I'm on Matt's boat. I don't agree with that because what you're doing is you're saying, what does this text mean in this moment? In the same way that Hannah and Victorian period, like writing about the Victorian period is like writing about like, what does this teach us not only about the historical period, but what is this, why is this still useful to read in a sense? Yeah. Um, Cause I'm, I mean, I'm in some ways in both boats where it's like, I, I work with texts from the 17th century up into the present um, together. Uh, because it's like, I think that when mm-hmm. you read across those, across those, like those, those temporal spaces, there's useful things that come out. And it's very much in the same keeping with the death of the author in that, like, obviously 
when I read something from the 17th century with something from yesterday, that's not a historical, <laughs> uh, that's not a, that's not a historical comparison. Um, there's one right. guy, he was there. I found it. I use it as a literary tool. Um, and yeah. And then I, I think that that's, for me, that's a much more helpful way to think about criticism personally, because it's about how, how do these historical texts still relate to what the questions and ideas that we have now. And I mean, it's not like criticism mm -hmm. from like, I don't know, like the 1950s is useless or even the Victorian period. Yeah. Uh, right. You know, like what Oscar Wilde wrote about art is still used by people to think about how we interpret texts today. Uh, when we look at what people were writing about, say, Jane Eyre in the 1950s versus the 1980s versus the present shows us, you know, not only like the change in thought, but also like what we like have valued as like mm -hmm. academics or a culture. I mean, you know, I've had students ask me, you know, kind of the cliche, like sometimes aren't sometimes the curtains just blue, Hannah, like, right, don't, right. don't, don't we, do we really <laughs> think that like authors and uh, we were watching pride and prejudice and zombies at the time. Um, when we were, when I got this question, like, do we really think that authors spend like so much time on every little detail or do they just like, write things down and like, how can we tell the difference and why do criticism in the first place? And part of my answer for that is, okay, fine. Let's be honest. I don't think that someone like E.L. James, um, to pick on 50 shades of gray again, because that's, that's what I'm gonna I do. mean, that's what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't think she like spent time, like thinking every word of her, like 500 page, uh, no, yeah, like novel, Dream like, uh, yeah. but whenever she says things, and this is like a dumb example, whenever she says things, and this is my favorite line, Amelia, I haven't read the whole thing because I just can't. But when she says things like, you know, uh, my like face or cheeks turn as red as the communist manifesto. <laughs> 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 oh boy! Wow, like, hot. <laughs> <laughs> as they call. I mean, back, I don't know. I don't. As I know back. some people that would find that description very erotic. <laughs> Swoon. I don't know. People that like a sexy semiotician also probably about that comparison. It's a very, very small subset of the universe, but they're there. They're there. I know some oh, of them. Sexy Marxist. That, that might be my that might be my costume this year. Okay. That is actually a costume you can buy. I have seen it. Of course it is. Uh huh. You can be sexy Karl Marx. Oh, of all things. Googling, right. Right. googling it right now. So okay. Yeah. So, while, so while you're googling, it'll be in the show notes, folks. Uh, but you know, like the idea that like communist manifesto and red go together, there is a cultural assumption there, mm -hmm. and you know, even just like the cliches we use, even if we just don't like think about them, if we break them down, we can see still see what like our culture assumes. And right. Cliche, cliches are cliches because they mean something that's culturally resonant. Yeah. And we, you know, we, we assume a lot of things without thinking about them. And that's really important whenever we look at in terms of like the text, whether or not I personally thought about it really hard when I was writing my thing or not. And mm -hmm. 
And so there we, I mean, like, there we go. I mean, like, you know, like what is left in and what is left out of Prime Prejudice and Zombies is really interesting because uh, the one like line in Prime Prejudice that relates to Empire is uh, Mr. Darcy says, even savages can dance. And most contemporary adaptations take that out for obvious reasons. But Prime Prejudice and Zombies actually leaves it in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, like it modifies it to like relate to the zombies. <laughs> And that is really interesting. Like to go back to the, like the are, are the do the like the, do the blue curtains matter? And it's like, well, maybe they don't. But if you can make an interpretation of the text in which the blue curtains are evidence of something that's a larger part of the text, then like absolutely they matter. Mm-hmm. Um, like if I I remember I would did a really cool paper that my professor got really excited about. I'm as as regular listeners will know, um, I'm a person that sews. <laughs> And I was reading uh, Willa Cather's The Professor's House, and she had there's a section, there's a seamstress in the book, um, and there's a section where Willa Cather is describing dress forms. Based on her descriptions, I suspect that Willa Cather has never seen a dress form in her life. <laughs> um, and I don't think that the way that she sort of describes them in a really weird way, as if they were, mis- like, to me as a seamstress, somebody who uses dress forms, like, to me, they sound like misshapen bodies. Do I think that that was a thing she did intentionally? No, I think that she probably just produced a poor description of a dress form. Mm-hmm. But when you understand in the larger context of the book, in which there's a lot of themes about the, like, basically position of women in the family, um, and the person who's sewing is someone who's also a household employee, who's a very central part of the text, um, and ultimately very, especially the ending, like... To me, it's like that, the fact that Willa Cather is describing what are essentially figures of the female form in a way that is really disfigured is mm-hmm. relevant to the mm-hmm. overall yeah. meaning of what gender performance is in that, in that text. Well, I'm going to take, I'm going to take Fifty Shades of Grey seriously for a moment, just because I think I, so I've read, I'm not, I've also not finished it. And I, I'm, I'm really going to, at some point, I'm just going to read the entire thing. I'm going to power through it. I, this is something I need You're to do. like what, 42 shades through. Yeah. You could get an audio book. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, um, to, to the, your, your description about like how a dress form works from what I've read of 50 shades of gray, I'm not convinced that E.L. James has ever had sex before because, because, <laughs> because, yeah, because yeah. I think I have, you know, once or twice. And, <laughs> and I'm sure one of us is doing it wrong and I'm not sure which, but, but what I think of as sex is not what's described in that book. So, but that said, I think that um, in, in our last show was talking about the sex lives of Muppets. You know, like that was, you know, we were talking about Bert and Ernie being gay and I talked in detail about, you know, how much I think Elmo fucks. Now, the writers may or may not have intended Bert and Ernie to be gay. You know, we, we know for a fact that one writer did intend that, but I don't think anybody is specifically trying to write Elmo as a kinky pansexual, um, um, polyamorous uh, three-year-old, but they are. And that's, and that, and that's what, you know, like whether they intended or not, that reading is clearly there because I made it and I'm not the only one. When I, when I pointed it out, mm-hmm. people were like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, I see that, you know, and, and it's come up again, it's come up in other places. And, you know, we talked about every show, we talk about things like there's the, 
the, the last show all four of us were on at the same time, I think, was the Shira show. And on that episode, we talked about the fact that there there is the memory that people have of Shira being this perfect woman, you know, the perfect woman, the sex goddess that is a male gaze character that was never intended by that show. But the fact that there are enough fanboys on deviant art who believe that is a meaningful and relevant thing. It's also meaningful and relevant that there are enough Noel Stevensons in the world who saw this as, and this was an empowering message for me when I was seven and I want to give it to people now. So, Mm -hmm. so, you know, both of those interpretations are equally valid and they seem to be in tension with each other, but they don't necessarily have to be. But they, yeah, but they coexist in the world. Mm-hmm. And they both say things. They, they both say things mm-hmm. that are that are important or relevant to talk about. As, as someone who engages in in creative writing and, and comics as well, just you might, and this is a much smaller level because I'm not a New York Times bestselling author, but I, I've encountered that with with my work. There's you know, one of one of the novels that I've self published. Um, it's you. Stranger Things type modern horror fiction kind of thing that I wrote 15 years ago, uh, longer than that now. And it's, it's absolutely, Mav and I've talked about this. It is thoroughly encoded with Arthurian imagery and, and that sort of thing. Never overt. If you know the Arthurian stuff, you pick up on it. If you don't, shouldn't matter. Cheap plug uh, for King of Summer. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so a cheap plug, plug for you. There, there will be a link to the Amazon. Available, yeah. <laughs> Available on the Box Podcast webpage, uh, which but, you should be watching. But, but, the, but when, I was, when I was writing it, I had a woman who was editing it for me, and like I was actively putting some of the stuff in there. But there was a scene that she, she read and was leaving me comments on, and without going into specifics, it was like, oh, I see this. What you did here, this there was this thing, and it, it completely sums up that, that Arthurian thing. And my response was, yeah, um, meant to do that. And that was a case where I hadn't. So while I was doing, while I was doing this through the entire book, she, because she was, her brain was already in that mode. She read into something that I didn't intend at all. And the moment she said it, it was like, well, yeah, it, that's there. It's absolutely there. Mm-hmm. Whether I intended it or not, it's absolutely there. Mm-hmm. So I, did I intend that unconsciously? Yeah, maybe. But, you know, but it's just, just as a very practical example of someone reading something that they see something in it that I know I didn't intend on any conscious level, but it's there. And that's, that's, that's kind of what we all do with interpretation and critique. We, if we can see it, it's there. Well, so the original, I mean, just to give a little bit of context, we mentioned at the beginning that we got this idea from, you know, an argument we were in on Facebook. The original context of that argument was uh, the friend of ours was making the argument that does it, you know, he, he doesn't like when he reads some piece of media and and he sees it to be racist or sexist. And then the author says, no, I'm trying to comment on racism or sexism. Mm-hmm. His, his his point was we shouldn't be we shouldn't be reading these things that have racist messages. And this is where I, you know, I vehemently disagree. Again, I teach Tarzan frequently. And for people who haven't read it, Tarzan the novel is not the Disney thing that you are aware of. Tarzan the novel is blatantly racist. It is extremely offensive to the to the modern, to the modern reader, unless you're a Nazi. I mean, it, like there, it, it is it, yeah. Tarzan, Tarzan lynches people frequently. 
he he hangs out in trees and he drops nooses around black men's heads and he yanks up really hard. This is a hobby of his in the book. Um, it, it is it it happens a lot. So there is a lot of very very problematic things that happen in Tarzan. I would say so. I I very much do not think that Burroughs is commenting on racism at that point, but I still think it's an important thing to read. So the but the point of the Facebook poster was he was trying to say, well, but if it if it even if you think you're commenting, you're still being racist and that's a problem. And the answer to that, at least if you're going to believe Bart, which I have to because otherwise, you know, my career makes no sense, then <laughs> then the answer is, well, yes, yes, it is racist. And yes, it is also not. And that, you know, you need to be able to do both. If I'm, you know, if I'm. Well, in context also depends a lot, like the context in which you're reading it, which is, I mean, what we're talking about. Right. Well, the so here, here's an interesting one. Something more modern is um, actually it's not more modern. It's going to once I say it um, all in the family, all in the family is a racist television show. It is clearly to me, and in fact, I've seen the stars and the writers and the producers and directors all say, no, we are trying to comment on the fact we are trying to point out the racism of Archie Bunker and the problems with that, that mean of method of thinking in the 70s. That's what that show was about. But there were a lot of racists who loved Archie Bunker, mm-hmm. who really, really loved Archie Bunker. Who, who get, and who I was didn't, watching. Who didn't get the commentary. They, they didn't see it. As who commentary. didn't get the commentary. Yeah. And they're not wrong. Yeah, and, and, and they're and that, but the people who got it weren't wrong. either. Yeah, and, and that's that's part of the the point, I think, that, that this guy was trying to make. He, he used examples of things like Breaking Bad and Walter White and uh, Rick on Rick mm-hmm. and Morty of just like, here are these horrible, horrible characters. And he just he got very tired of reading critiques of these characters saying, yes, they are just commentary on this horrible behavior. And, 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 and they are, and, and they are, uh, but his point was, and they're also, horrible. Yeah, and, and people don't get that. And they just see them as horrible people and they relate to the horribleness and, and they, they, they admire the horribleness and, and he's, mm-hmm. he's not wrong, but mm-hmm. so, yeah, so it is, it's that whole, that is that tension of how do you read this? And, and obviously both are possible. Uh, and, yeah, and mm-hmm. well, you know, my, my paper from, from um, PCAC last year was about the television show Iron Fist, which a lot of people hate because they see it as a story of a white, a rich white man with white privilege who also gets to be a superhero. And it is, I like it better because I see it as commenting on that trope. And I see, you know, I realize, yeah, but nothing ever works out for Danny until it does because he's, I mean, it, it, because he's rich, but he's an idiot. <laughs> and then, and to me, that's the proper reading of that show. Both are right, but you can't have, you can't have a show. You can't do narratives if you only want positive representations, because then there's no tension. By the way, it just got canceled. Yeah. Yes, it got canceled. Um, sort of. Maybe it's weird. Like people are saying that, oh, it's canceled. And I, and I, and I it's, it's, it's very odd because there's a, there's a certain, um, some, there's a certain group of people who, when something like that happens, will sort of celebrate 
yay, we won, but you didn't win anything and it's not necessarily canceled. Like net, what really happened is Netflix did not order the next version of the show, which I saw coming because they ordered fewer episodes for the second season, but also Netflix's contract with Disney is ending. Right. Like they, they might not have had like, yes, it was canceled by Netflix. And then Marvel said, but Iron Fist will live on somewhere. Hint, hint. Uh, yeah, that, that they've basically they've all but said that these people are still under contract and they're going to be on the other network. So, you know, save up your dollars for for the Disney right. streaming service, <laughs> because I am. Cause yeah. And that you know, Iron Fist was canceled. And I imagine that we're not going to be seeing much more Daredevil. You know, Daredevil's dropping soon. Um, but I don't know that there's going to be a Daredevil season four on Netflix or a Luke Cage season. We might get three. Because I bet you it's in the production already, that Cage and, and Jessica Jones, but they're all going to leave. Is what yeah. it's going to come down right. to. But but the, but that doesn't mean. I mean, same thing. Every interpretation is valid. So, do you win something by uh, by getting rid of by by actually getting rid of that person? Um, a more recent one. If we look at um, Ray, I, the yeah. Roseanne Ray, show, I don't. Ha- Oh, the Roseanne show. Ray, I don't don't have to hate watch something now. (laughs) Well, I mean, so I watched, I watched the, I watched a couple of them. I didn't love it, but I, but I wasn't, you know, I'd sort of grown away from the show the -hmm. last time it was on, you know, 20 years ago, whenever it was on it, you know, it was the, the first few episodes of the new revival were fine. And to like, I think a lot of people complaining about it were complaining because of her personal politics, because right. they can't, they cannot remove Roseanne Barr, the person from Roseanne Connor, the character. And to be fair, Roseanne Barr, the person makes that very hard, you know, with her tweets and her, and her general attitudes and just general deplorable um, behavior. The character on the show very much was trying to be Archie Bunker. That was, that was clearly part of the message there. And I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with sort of, with sort of reading it that way. And then I can, I can make the separation in my mind because the character of Darlene on the show and the character of Jackie were very much specifically opposed to them in the narrative. Like you could see, you could see the storyline did tell you no, the liberals on this show think the conservatives on this show are idiots. And it did not privilege Roseanne Barr's point of view, even though she was the title character. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, uh, the producer of the show is Sarah Gobert, who plays Darlene. So she she knew what she was doing. Was it working? I don't know, because people, you know, people were not able, you know, you have to you have to say if, if Sarah Gilbert is the producer, but the author is dead because, you know, she's obviously still alive, but the but her intent doesn't yeah, matter so much as the interpretation. <laughs> she is metaphorically dead. If people didn't get it, then it it matters that they didn't get it. And if they if, if the if the fans cannot separate Roseanne Barr from Roseanne Connor and Roseanne Connor from the show, then that's a failing. But I also think it's a failing if we can't have a show that looks at the current cultural moment, not just because I'd be out of a job, but because I think that if we can't analyze what's going on now, then what are we doing? What's the point of living? Oh, great. <laughs> well, that's a, 
That's an uplifting note. Well, yeah. So, see, here's the thing: that author has to die so that we may live. Ooh. Yeah. See, thank you for making that uplifting. And, 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 and that's kind of the the quote that that Bart has that you have on the blog is something very similar to that. That, yeah, you know, it's it's the, the birth of the reader. The author must die for the birth of the reader. I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Of a critic, he would actually yeah. say, Bart. Art privileges, critic, um, you know, academic critics over other. It's sort of a problematic thing that he does. Like, yeah, like many, like many uh, critics. <laughs> yeah, there, there are you know, c- certain people are better than other people. And in, in, in. <laughs> so the convenient thing is because Barth, Barth is an author, he is now also that. dead. So again, <laughs> he is dead, so that we may live. <laughs> <laughs> So, well, so we've resolved nothing. <laughs> no. You know, the best part about this show is that Hannah predicted. <laughs> like in, in, in your initial comment, you're like, this is the one show where we're really going to yeah, resolve. Right. I feel like yeah, I've done so. that for the past couple episodes. Um, <laughs> uh, Hannah is secretly a <laughs> She can only, however, see roughly about an hour and a half into the future. <laughs> well, you know, I did. I think I did jinx the last show because when you asked me how I was doing, my comment was, it could be worse. And then, (laughs) then, (laughs) you know, I'm disappointed I did not get to talk about Ian McEwain and his death of the author. Wrap wrap it up. Oh, good. Well, this this, this is my favorite. Wrap it up. This is my favorite story. So, uh, you know, he, Mm -hmm. he wrote Atonement. Uh, Katya's favorite novel, Saturday. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, I would just like to point out that is my least favorite novel. <laughs> nope, it's on the show. It's on the show. It's on, it's on the internet. It is now true forever. I'm fine with that. <laughs> I mean, you, the author is dead, so... Um, uh, who was to say? Anyway. Oh, boy. So he, so he told this story um, about his son who was required to read um, Enduring Love and write an essay on it. And so McGee Wayne like gave him all the things he thought his son should consider in writing his essay. And apparently his son got a C plus on it. So McGee Wayne's now like, I don't, I don't know if anyone should read my stuff. I guess I'm not that important. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> I, and I, don't, I accept that. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very surprised by your stance. <laughs> I know it's shocking. I mean, I don't know. I, I understand why people enjoy McEwen. I just do not. <laughs> Even a little bit. Yeah. Which you're allowed to do. That's the point of criticism. The point of criticism is to have a conversation. It's to the point of literature is to have a conversation. What can we, you know, what can we take from this that is positive, that is negative? What can we identify as mm-hmm. problems and what can we fix? So. And sometimes that conversation involves some heavy eye rolling. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and sometimes you record it while you drink mm, beer, and then you yes. pop it off into the show, <laughs> and, 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 and wear wear a beret and hot pants. <sighs> so sexy, so hot. Though I don't know, you know, with, with blush. The, the what is it? The red, the red of what was the line, Hannah? Oh. <laughs> Turn as red as the Communist Manifesto. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. <sighs> well, we've definitely solved nothing except for maybe your Halloween yes. plans this year. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, thank you 
all yeah. three of you, as always, for <laughs> for giving me a pleasant afternoon to discuss about the discuss <laughs> these things, and hopefully, the readers, I mean, the listeners, are still going. I guess they've that was interesting, even if they have resolved nothing. Because again. <laughs> You know, and that's why people keep coming back to us. Yeah, this they, is this, yeah. this is this, is this show. So. At some point, maybe they're like, maybe if I listen to many, many, many episodes, they will eventually solve <laughs> something. Some problem. We'll see if we get advertising. We can at least solve our our paychecks. Yeah, there you yeah. go. Uh, this could be great when it's like episode five hundred. It's like, whoa, they they fixed world hunger. How how the, how the fuck did that happen? <laughs> Good job. Yeah. Yay. We'll work on it, guys. It was, it was worth it. You know. Yeah. Literary criticism to the rescue. <laughs> I could start talking about British socialism um, in the 19th century if you want. Mm. Surprisingly, Ooh. I could also sort of talk about that. That's yeah, I. That's that's weird. We, we we had a whole class on that, Katya. Well, yeah, I'm also writing about H.G. Wells, and then was specifically yeah. his thoughts on Hitler, of all things. I just, yeah, just was reading Hitler. I was reading Mein Kampf for my dissertation, which is this is what happens to your brain when you go to grad school. So you know, hey kids, stay in school. Mm. <laughs> I guess. People, you know, where can we find, where can we find Palindrome Hannah? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Hannah Lee Rogers. And where can we look at cool dress forms that are actually dress forms with fabric Woo! on them, Tanya? Uh, I'm at just that nerd kid on Instagram. There's also union things, which is fun. So, you know, there's that. Union, union things? Union is things. It, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. On, yeah. Union things on dress union forms. Union things, yeah, that's right. sewing, yeah. and sometimes video games. Sometimes video games. Uh, Wayne, where can people find you? People can't find me anymore, right? <laughs> Wayne is the enigma. Wayne Hyper, yeah, no, Wayne-Wise.com. Yeah, and like four shows ago, Wayne's like, I have an idea. I'm going to be up, updating my blog soon. Yeah, that was four I shows mean, ago. Is, yeah, that hasn't happened yet. Seriously, if you Google me, you can find tons and tons and tons of stuff out there. So most mostly on my yeah. blog. But, so... <laughs> And you can find me at Chris Maverick on Twitter. You can follow my my blog at www.chrismaverick.com. You can follow the show's blog at www.voxpopcast.com. You can follow the show on Twitter at Vox Popcast. We've got a Facebook page. If you we, like the show, you, oh, go ahead. We have, we have business cards now. So if you see us in what? person, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Thanks, but see now, now, now you you've ruined the surprise for Katia and Hannah, who also yeah. will have business cards on Tuesday, but they did not know that. <laughs> well, well, go back and edit this was, out. That way, they. Won't I was know. wondering. What, I was wondering what the the address needs were. I'm excited. Yeah. Oops. <laughs> Sorry. So, you know, you know, Merry Christmas early. But yes, if you see us in person, like you know, then we will give you a card. Sure. Um, anyway. <laughs> you, see, if you see us in person in our sexy costumes. Mm. Mm, yes. <laughs> if you enjoy this nonsense, subscribe <laughs> to us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever else, you know, Android podcast. I think we're, we're on Plex. We're on, uh, I don't know if we're on SoundCloud. We might be. I don't know. On the places. <laughs> Let us know wherever you find podcasts. Subscribe to us. Write us and oh, write us reviews. Reviews help people find podcasts, particularly on iTunes. It works with a magic algorithm that no one understands, but it's very important. And we don't really get a lot of them. So write us a review or we'll read it on the show. 
And we will thank you profusely because we are sad and lonely. Can't you tell? We've just been spending our Saturday talking about literary stuff <laughs> to microphones because please love us. Please. Thanks, Mav. Yes. Yep. <laughs> I feel better about my life now. Oh. Yep. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Welcome to my hell. <laughs> I'd like to thank Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our epic theme song that is playing and building ever so more epically to play us out. I would like to thank you for listening at home and please follow the blog. Please give us comments on whatever our next topic is and tell all your friends. And thank you for listening once again. Thank you three all for being on this ridiculous show with me. And we will see you next time. Bye. 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 What's a chopper, baby? Whose chopper is this? Zed's. Who's Zed? Zed's dead, baby. Zed's dead.